All right, you know, we got some good participation. All right, way to go, way to go. Um, I realize that for some of you, uh, you got started with us and maybe you fell off already. It just happens, right? And uh, we all do that. I, I want to challenge you to jump back in, all right? And, and just just pick up with reading chapter 5 this week. Uh, you can go back later and maybe cover whatever chapters you've missed, but uh, really don't miss an opportunity uh, to read through the story with us uh, because I think it'll help you in, in a number of great ways. Um, today, I, I, I want you to know that I'm praying uh, for you, and I'm praying that you will see and that you will believe for yourself uh, in your heart that God can use you, uh, that, that He has a plan for you and your life. And as the Bible says, that He ordained every day of your life for you in advance, even before the thought of you ever crossed your mom and your dad's mind, but that God can use you. And what He's looking for from you and me, even in our inadequacies, uh, even when we would say that we are unqualified, that He's not looking for qualifications, He's just looking for you and me to say yes. Uh, he's looking for that surrender from us. So we'll just say, yes, God, um, you can use me. How, how many of you have ever heard the name uh, Faja Singh? Any, anybody heard this name before? It was in the news pa- this past week, uh, a guy by the name of Faja Singh. And, and, and he was in the news because he ran what he claims will be his last running race. Um, and he gained notoriety back in 2011 when he, get this, when he finished the Toronto Marathon, that is 26.2 miles in 8 hours and 11 minutes. Now, if you know little, nothing, some about running, it probably doesn't take long before you do the math and realize that that's not real fascinating. I mean, to run a marathon in 8 hours and 11 minutes, I, I mean, what's so spectacular about that? How do you become a person of fame for some, so, some sort of an accomplishment? Well, I, I want to just kind of show you a picture here of this man so you can see him for yourself. This is Faja Singh. Um, he's also known, his nickname is the Turbaned Tornado, believe it or not. And, uh, and here's what makes him fascinating. He was 100 years old when he ran that Toronto Marathon. And even more impressive was that just some years back in 2003, at the age of 92, he ran a marathon in five hours and 40 minutes. Five hours and 40 minutes at the age of 92. Um, He didn't start running until he was 89 years old which some of you are thinking, hey, there's still hope for me. Like I got another 50 years, you know, before I got I to start running. He said he started running as a way of alleviating depression and stress in his life. And I guess you could say that he's a pretty unlikely uh, sort of a runner. Well, as we've talked about these last few weeks, our God has a habit of using the least likely people to accomplish his will and his purposes. And we see that in Abraham and Sarah. I mean, this elderly couple, formerly infertile couple who were were chosen by God to populate a nation. Uh, Last week, we see that in a teenager by the name of Joseph, uh, who was sold by his brothers into slavery. And eventually, he's thrown into prison, but God's using all of it. He's orchestrating this plan, and eventually, uh, Joseph is going to rise to second in command uh, in all of Egypt. Well, picking up where we left off last week, After Joseph died, things got progressively worse in Israel. And they had settled into, this nation of Israel had settled in Egypt, and they began to grow in numbers. And their numbers were so large that the new ruler of the time, the new Pharaoh of the day, began to fear the Israelites, that they would eventually become so great and so powerful that they might eventually take over Egypt. And so I want to pick it up right there. Uh, If you've got your own Bibles, it's Exodus chapter 1, the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus 1. Uh, We're going to pick up 
up in verse 8. If you're reading along in the story, you can go to page 43. And if you don't have either of those, if you're not uh, using something like version on your smartphone, uh, we'll have the words for you up on the screen too. But Exodus chapter 1. Starting in verse 8, again, I just want you to understand historically and contextually what's happening in Egypt. And here's what it says. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with hard labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. And then verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, this is the Israelite people in slave in Egypt, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now I want you to pause there for a second. And remember, we've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of weeks about how the Bible has a lower story and the Bible has an upper story. And when we talk about the lower story, the lower story, lower story is just what's unfolding each day. And, and not only then, but even today, I mean, the lower story is what's happening around us. It's our immediate circumstances. It's our perspective of those circumstances and, and what this means for us right now. I mean, when you look at those things that are happening right now, much like for the Israelites then, you know, especially for the Israelites. I mean, I mean, what do you conclude? I mean, well, if you're there or if you look at it from this perspective, it's like, wow, they're doomed. Or, I mean, where's God in all of this? I mean, or what really happened? Or, I mean, I, I thought God had a plan. Again, that's from the lower story perspective that, that we see that it's like, oh, Pharaoh has the upper hand now. Everything's going to change. He's caught God, God off guard or something like that, but that's not the case. In fact, over 500 years earlier, God told Abraham that something like this would happen. And in Genesis 15, 13, we we looked at this story just a couple of weeks ago. It says, again, this conversation between God and Abraham, God said to him, know for certain, Abraham, that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And that's just a glimpse of the upper story. It's a reminder to us that God always has a plan. It never gets messed up. He's never caught off guard. And it's a perfect plan. It's a perfect plan that's been unfolding all through the scripture. We're going to see it over the next year together. But it's a perfect plan that is still established and in process even today. And that's why we're reading the story together. Again, it's why we challenge everyone to read through this with us, to read through the Bible with us in 2013. Because as I've said before, we're not going to have enough time to cover every detail of the chapters along the way. And so if you're going to get the most out of this, and if you're going to get the complete grasp of God's upper story, you've got to read this for yourself. Today, we're going to look at the life of Moses. And we're going to see how once again, God is going to use an ordinary man, but well, actually a very flawed man to do some extraordinary things. Now, if you know anything at all about Moses, and I'm guessing that even if you're new to church, you have at least some of an understanding, or maybe you remember a particular event from his life, you may or may not know that Moses is lucky to be alive. Because as we talked about just a moment ago, at the time of his birth, the Israelites, who were also at times referred to as the Hebrew people, were living in Egypt. And as you saw, they're in captivity because Pharaoh was a little paranoid. All right, this is a paranoid ruler and, and he was a little fearful of this people of Israel because they were growing as a nation and it didn't matter how hard he worked them, they're still having babies. And so we can only assume there are a lot of happy homes, a lot of happy marriages, you know, right now at this time, even in spite the conditions and scholars estimate that maybe as many as two to three million Israelites that are living within Egypt 
at this time. And so the Pharaoh, what he did, again, this paranoid Pharaoh, is he issued an order, a decree, as a way of slowing down and oppressing the Hebrew people. He issued a decree that every Hebrew baby boy born was to be put to death. I mean, it's just genocide. I mean, that's what it is. Call it like it is. And it was a horrible time, as you can imagine, especially for God's people. Well, Moses' mother gave birth to him during this time. And like any mother, she couldn't imagine the thought of someone taking his life. And so we know from Scripture that she hid him for three months until she felt like she could not hide him safely any longer. And, and being a wise woman, and if you read her story and you really seek to understand it, you see that she had great faith and, and really trusted God with all things. Well, she happened to know that every day the Pharaoh's daughter would come down to the Nile River to bathe. And so in a desperate sort of a move in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, or over on the top of page 44, it says, When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And so exactly like it says, she put Moses in this basket and she floated the basket out onto the water. And, and, and sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter came across it. She found Moses and, and she decides to keep Moses as her own. And even as hard and as difficult as it was, I mean, this was, this was Moses' mother's hope. And, and so Moses moves into the palace as a young baby and now is raised as Egyptian royalty and and all we know, and again, I'm fast-forwarding through this story, but somewhere along the line, he figured out that he wasn't Egyptian blood. Right? He wasn't like everyone else around him, but that he's actually Jewish. He's a, he's a Hebrew, and, and it didn't take him long to figure out what position and place the Hebrew people held in Egypt. And that is that they didn't really have one. I mean, they were slaves. They were in captivity. And so Moses was the exception. And one day we know that he was out amongst the people. He was out amongst his own people, the Hebrew people, again enslaved. And, and he watched as one of the Egyptian slave masters was beating a Hebrew worker. And a fight broke out. And Moses killed the Egyptian leader and, and maybe thought that he could kind of sort of keep it on the down low. But, but in Exodus 2.15, we see that the Pharaoh heard about it. He was angry. He tried to kill Moses. But fortunately, Moses was able to escape to this nowhere place called Midian. Now, Moses basically goes into hiding for 40 years. That's a long time. Like, I'm 37, all right? So I got three more to go before I experience, you know, what Moses experienced in this time. And we don't know a lot about what he did during this time, but what we do know is that in order to make a living, he became a shepherd. And, and, and that's just an extreme contrast when you think about going from the palace to tending sheep. Well, one day in miraculous fashion, God speaks directly to Moses uh, through the form of a burning bush. And, and you might have read this past week. Uh, maybe you've heard this story before. But we learned from, from reading this story that what was unusual and unique about this burning bush is that even though it was on fire, it was never completely consumed. And God speaks to Moses uh, through this bush. And, and I want you to see those words in Exodus 3, starting in verse 7, or over on the top of page 46. Here, here's what God says to Moses. Forty years have now passed in Midian. God says this, Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Do you think our God is concerned about suffering in this world? We see that he is here. 
He says, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Then verse 9, and now the cries of the Israelites have reached me because even though Moses has been absent, all right, the pain and the oppression continues back home. And he says, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And now verse 10, and here's the direct command between God and Moses. He says this, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, what follows here is really a conversation much like the honest exchange that you and I often have when we feel in unqualified or inadequate for something that God is calling us to. Moses just says to God, what? You got the wrong guy here. Like, I mean, you know who I am, right? You know that I'm on the run. You know what I did over there. I've been gone for 40 years now. I tend sheep. I have no place in Israel whatsoever. And God just says, no, Moses, I'll be with you. And Moses just responds with, well, you know, I don't, I don't speak very well. I'm not going to be able to answer their questions. I mean, certainly I can't go and stand before the Pharaoh and do what you're going to call me to do. And God just says, no, Moses, I'm going to give you the answers. I'm going to give you every word that you have to say along the way because I am who I am. And with that, you know, God just goes on explaining how he's going to do these great things, how he's choosing Moses and how he's going to do these great things through Moses' life. And, and Moses tries to, he, he just keeps going on and on about, you know, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I can't do what you're calling or you're asking me to do. And next, God, he uses these three miraculous sort of examples as a way of convincing Moses of his power. You know, first he, he tells Moses, hey, Moses, you've got a staff in your hand. I want you to throw it down on the ground. And when he does that, it turns into a snake. But, but before long, God turns it back into a staff again. Or secondly, he tells Moses, hey, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your hand inside of your cloak. And Moses does that. When he takes it out, he found that his hand was covered in leprosy. But then God made his hand clean once again. And then he said to Moses, he says, I want you to go and I want you to get some water from the Nile River. And when Moses pours that water out of the ground or onto the ground, he, God turns it into blood. And, and I, I think what he wants Moses to see and maybe for you and me to see too, is that he's just silencing this argument that Moses can't make a difference. I mean, he's trying to prove a point in that he's calling Moses and how he's prepared in spite of the circumstances to do even greater things through him. And I just think that even today, for you and me, we can learn something so important here uh, and even apply it to our lives. Because when you think about it, again, if you're kind of taking on lower story logic, I mean, if you just look at the events of this time and everything that's happening, Moses isn't qualified for this task. I mean, he's a man on the run. He's a man with doubts. He's a man with questions and concerns. He's got this record. I mean, what can he possibly do for the Hebrew people in Egypt? But the lower story always says one thing. And the upper story always reveals something greater. And I like what Randy Frazee says about this. He says, you know, God sees Moses' weaknesses as providing the best conduit for God's strength. And said another way, and if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Um, God's strength is best when we're weak. I mean, the Bible tells us this. That God's strength for your life is most appropriately shown. It's best displayed when you and I, when we just see that we're weak, that we are weak without God. I mean, that's when he works best. I mean, when you look at it, there is no way for Moses to take any credit 
for what's going to happen in the days ahead. I mean, there's nothing about his personality or even his speaking skills for others to say that he was qualified to get the job done. I mean, he's just full of questions. He's full of doubts and he begs God to send someone else. And I just think he sounds a lot like you and me more than we might even be willing to understand. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, how often do you beg God to choose someone else to do maybe what he's called you to do? But Moses just keeps fighting God. And so as the story goes, he he plays the stuttering card. He says, hey, I don't don't speak very well. I'm I'm really no good at public speaking. It's almost as if he's afraid that God's going to put him in a no-win sort of a situation and, and then embarrass him. But let's not forget that God's reputation is on the line here too. And so we know he's not going to do that. And so tired of his excuses, the Bible says that God's anger burned against Moses. And once again, God says, Moses, I'm choosing you. And you're going to lead my people, your people, out of the slavery that they're in in Egypt. But here's what I'm going to do. You you take your brother Aaron with you. I'm going to give you him and and we'll let him talk. All right. Uh, I'll give the words to Aaron. He's going to speak on our behalf. But I want you to remember that I'm really choosing you. You're still my chosen leader for this particular plan. Now, granted, and if we just kind of step back from this, I mean, God's request that Moses be the mouthpiece to the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at this time, is pretty intimidating when you think about it. In fact, um, do you know there, there was a survey out not too long ago that talked about the number one thing that Americans are most afraid of? Number one on the list is public speaking. Number two is death. Num- number one, we're afraid of public speaking, and number two is death. But I like, I like how Jerry Seinfeld responded to that. He says, so, hey, here's how that works. That means that when you go to a funeral, you'd rather be the one in the casket than the one that has to give the eulogy. I mean, that, that, that's just what we think about public speaking. And so you kind of see where Moses is coming from. But, but no, really, seriously. I mean, have you ever felt like Moses? Just kind of in life when things come up? Maybe you felt like... You were nudged by God to do something or you experienced his calling on your life to respond uh, in a certain way and, and you just kind of shoot back, you've got the wrong person here. I mean, I, I'm unqualified for such a task. I am inadequate for this. I mean, maybe someone takes or suggests that you take a shot at something, something that you've never done before. Maybe something as fearful and frightening as serving with the gen kids, you know. Uh, you know, maybe someone suggests that you're like, no way, I mean, I would never think of doing anything like that. Or, or maybe it's about starting something new. Uh, maybe it's leading something like a connection group or reaching out to a neighbor that just moved into your apartment building or onto your street or something like that or volunteering at your kid's school. And so, so often, how do we respond? We're like, what, me? I mean, God, you've got it all wrong here. I mean, you know, there's no way I can't do this. I, I can't. I mean, I, I can't do what you're calling or you're asking me to do. What must our excuses sound like to the God of the universe? Have you thought about that? I mean, what must my excuses sound like to him? Especially when he's nudged or he's called me to do something. You know, I just think we all have this tendency to question our abilities, especially when it comes to serving God in this world. Uh, In his book, The Search for Significance, uh, Robert McGee writes it like this. He says, if I think of myself differently than God thinks of me, who's mistaken, me or God? How often do we allow our minds to overrule what God says is true? I was made for and by God. I mean, the fact is that I have needs in me that only God can meet. And if I try to meet those needs by another person or stuff or a habit or a hobby, 
I mean, like you and me, and we're going to end up frustrated. We're going to end up angry, unfulfilled. And one of those needs that we so often go looking for is the need for affirmation. And the only way, the only way that we can overcome the fear of rejection is to value the opinion of God higher than the opinion of anyone else. And so many times, because so many times, you know, we look to other people for our validation and for our value. And what happens then is we become so fearful of our weaknesses. We become so fearful of being found out. But what if rather than viewing our weaknesses as a threat to our self-esteem, what if we started to change our perspective and to really see them as God's greatest opportunities to do something extraordinary through us? I mean, so often our greatest barrier, our biggest barrier to taking the step that God has called us to take is that we just don't believe what He sees in us. It's like, who's mistaken? Who's lying here? God's lying or I'm lying? Who's, who's not seeing this correctly? God, I, I, I really think that you've got the wrong person, just like Moses was experiencing. But, but once we realize who we are in Jesus Christ, I really think that's the key. I mean, really, when we see that we're a new creation in Jesus Christ and how he's enabled us to have a right relationship with God, well, then that changes everything. I mean, our efforts then, coming from that motivation, are pleasing to God. And he's just waiting for us to say yes. You know, he says, hey, I want to use you. And our response is, God, yeah, you can use me. I'm making myself available to you. Well, Moses had his doubts. And again, if you read it for yourself, something happens. He changes and, and he's obedient now. And he goes before the Pharaoh, again, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And one day he's standing in front of this most powerful man. Again, here's an 80-year-old guy who's a shepherd with a record. And he stands before the Pharaoh and he says, let my people go just as God has instructed him. Well, it doesn't go well. All right, Pharaoh's like, um, no, How, there you go. There's your answer. In fact, because you've asked, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to make the conditions even. It's, go, it, it's just, it's going to become, it's going to get worse here in Egypt because of your, your question. And he just follows through on that. I mean, the conditions got worse for the Israelites and Moses leaves for a while, but he doesn't give up. Instead, he starts returning. There are these series of visits to the Pharaoh, each time asking the same. Nothing seems to work. And so over a period of time, and maybe a portion of the story that you might be familiar with, God unleashes a series of plagues against the Egyptians, 10 ugly plagues that unfold one at a time. First, there was the Nile River turning to blood. Uh, second, frogs came from everywhere. Followed by that were gnats and swarms of flies and then diseased livestock uh, and then boils um, covering people's skin. There were thunderstorms of hail and locusts and frightening bouts uh, of darkness. Ten horrific plagues punishing Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. But the truth is, that with each of these catastrophes, each was a sign for the Pharaoh too. Because you see the Egyptian people were these, this polytheistic sort of a culture. Poly meaning many, theistic meaning God. I mean, they serve many gods and many goddesses along the way. And so each of these plagues was a specific sign to the Pharaoh that there is only one true God, the God of heaven, Jehovah God. For example, uh, Pharaoh worshipped the Egyptian god Happy, Hopi, H-A-P-I, uh, a little picture for you to look at here. Hopi was the god of the Nile River. And so when Moses turned through, when, when God turned the Nile River to blood, what he was really saying to Pharaoh was, I, I, I'm, I'm the god of that river. I'm the only true God. The same was true of the Egyptian god Heket. Uh, Pharaoh and the people worshipped Heket, a fertility goddess with the head of a frog. 
And so God sent these frogs that they quickly were sick of. And you can, well, you can just see what that would have done to the people and done to the Pharaoh. And then there was Ra, the sun god. And when God shut down the sun for several days and covered the earth with darkness, God was saying, Pharaoh, Ra is not God. There is only one God of the sun, and it's me. Ten plagues. And it wasn't until that tenth plague that Pharaoh's heart finally changed, and it's the one that hit the closest to home for him and for many of the people. Um, The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn son, of every firstborn son all throughout Egypt. But God promised protection for the Israelites. He provided for them a way out during this horrific plague. And he promised that if they would, that he would spare their sons, if they would take the blood of a pure spotless lamb and take this blood and use it to paint or to sprinkle across the doorposts of the homes that they were living in. Now, if this seems harsh on God's part, Uh, Remember who he's dealing with here in this Pharaoh. I mean, because Pharaoh had sentenced to death not just the firstborn male, but every male baby in Egypt. And Pharaoh had made no provision at all whatsoever for any baby to be saved. And and so with that 10th plague, just as God had predicted, the death angel on this particular night passed over all of Egypt and over all of these homes and over this land. And many firstborn males died, including the Pharaoh's son. And Exodus 12 describes that the loud wailing in Egypt was so great because there wasn't a home that hadn't lost someone along the way. Again, only those Only those homes where the blood of a lamb were painted across the doorpost, was painted across the doorpost, were lives spared, were lives spared from such a horrible night. I mean, God provided a way out for the Israelites, and that's why this day of freedom for the Jewish people has always been known as Passover, even up until today. Well, following that deadly night, Moses returned to the Pharaoh to find that he was crushed, again, because he had lost you know, not only so many in Egypt, but even his own son. And he finally gave in to Moses and gave Moses permission to lead the people out of Egypt. And so they're set free. God's people are on their way now under Moses' leadership out into the wilderness. But sometime afterwards, Pharaoh realized what he had done in releasing his entire workforce. And so his heart changed and, and he rounded up this group of soldiers and chariots and they're on their way in pursuit now while Moses is leading two to three million people out into the wilderness. And one day he turns around and he sees this Egyptian army in hot pursuit and they're pinned up. The Israelites are pinned up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go. And, and, and I, I just want you to see what the Israelites are saying. You know, thanks for nothing, Moses. I mean, their face so quickly destroyed. You know, at least we had our lives in Egypt, but now we're going to die out here in this wilderness. But then I want you to see what happens next. I want you to see how in Moses... This once reluctant, once insecure, once inadequate leader responds. I mean, this is a guy who pushed back. This is a guy who fought God to his face. This is the guy that said, no, 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 absolutely not. I can't. This is the guy who feared public speaking. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, it says that Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, the Lord that he will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. Moses says, do not be afraid, but stand firm. And it's just a reminder, you know, even through Moses' words, that his strength is best when we're weak. I mean, here's the guy who was all, I can't, I can't, I can't, but in a few short months of obedience and trust, he's now able to say, I can't, but God can. I can't do this, but here's what I've learned 
And here's what I want you to see today, that while I can't do it, and you can't do it either, our God can. He can do this. And His strength is perfect for this time right now. Well, I think you know the story from here. Again, whether you remember it from Sunday school or you watch the Ten Commandments in Charlton Heston, uh, in one of the most famous miracles of the Old Testament, the Lord, through Moses, parted the Red Sea. And the Bible tells us that the people of Israel marched through on dry ground. And when they got to the other side, again, this Egyptian army that was in pursuit, they found their way out into the middle of this riverbed. And before you know it, God released the waters and the Egyptian army was destroyed. Just as Moses had said, stand firm. Our God's going to be with us. And this is just the beginning of so many other opportunities, examples, that they're going to see God's hand and God at work. And so um, what do you take away from a story like this? Especially if you've been going to church all your life and you've heard this story a number of times. In fact, it's a kid's story. Like, why, why are we even talking about it in big church? You know, I mean, this is, this is what our kids ought to be talking about. But what do we take away from a story like this today? Well, the first thing is it's just a reminder that this is God's story. I mean, you're living it. It's a reminder that God has always had a plan. He's always had a story. And 500 years before this slavery in Egypt, God told Abraham that this would happen and he would use all of these events to get Joseph to Egypt who would eventually get his brothers and his family to Egypt and this nation to Egypt. And then he's going to bring them out of Egypt as he's doing right now. And as we'll see starting next week, he's got this plan to get them back to this promised land. And what a, again, just what a great reminder for you and me that our God is always in control. He's never lost control in your life and in my life and in your family. Our God has never lost control. He's got a plan for you. Um, If you're looking straight ahead at graduation, He's got a plan for you Um, post-graduation. He's got a plan for you in this new relationship that you find yourself in. He's got a plan for your children. Our God has a plan for your marriage. I mean, as God led these people, you know, out of slavery in Egypt, He can lead you to a better place with your finances. He can lead you to a greater place with your faith. I mean, if you'll just trust Him, if you'll stand firm in Him. I mean, it's like the verse that we looked at last week says, Romans eight twenty eight, that He is always working for the good. And we can know this, that our God is always working for the good and He's working for the good of those who love Him. As Moses says, are standing firm with our faith and with our trust and all of our eyes on Him. And so it's God's story. But the second thing is that you've got a part to play. You and I get a role. You you have a part in God's story. And and God knew what He was doing when He chose Moses. You know, even though Moses had all of these doubts and all of these excuses, I mean, think about it. Because even if you know somewhat of this story, I mean, it's easy to look at this story now because we know the end of the story and say, well, yeah, hey, Moses was a great choice, especially when you consider that he had this great sophisticated education by growing up in the palace, the best education at the time, probably in all of the world. And, and not only did he have this education, but he had this experience of growing up around politics and strategy, again, as he was living in the palace. And, and then that he was able to look to the Pharaoh as this leader, as this one who was able to manage large groups of people and we can only take away from that well that's going to matter you know as Moses is now leading a large group of people through the wilderness and so all of these experiences make Moses a perfect candidate for leadership but what's most important and Moses wasn't willing to see this at first but I think he got it in the wilderness is that God's strength is best when we know that we're weak 
then when we know that we don't have what it takes, that's when God's strength is best. God has a plan for your life. I mean, you're here for a reason. And he's got things, he's got extraordinary things that he wants to do in you and through you. And I mean, he wants to use your talents and your education. He wants to use your experiences and the lessons that you've learned in life. Uh, God can use the mistakes uh, that you've made along the way. God wants to use those things that you're most passionate about, those things that move you to tears. He wants to use your time. God is able and willing and ready to use your financial resources. He wants to use your home and the street that you live on uh, for him. God wants to use you. He has a plan for your life and he's willing to work through any doubts that you might have because he's not looking for qualifications, but he's looking for your availability. And he just knows that his strength is best and that it's perfect. Even when we feel and believe, even if others are telling you that you're weak and that you don't have what it takes. Uh, Paul said it like this, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, uh, as God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to write, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Hey, he says, the more weaknesses I have, the more opportunities for God's strength to rest upon my life and do even greater things. Because God's strength, again, is best when we see that we're weak. Um, I heard a story this past week about a woman from our Carmel campus who's a a cancer survivor. And uh, her disease prompted her that if she survived, she would never again tell God no. That she was just opening up her life, uh, making herself available to him. And she recalls a morning uh, before one of her chemo treatments that as she was getting ready, she was praying and she prayed something like, you know, God, I know and I believe with all my heart and with all my faith that you're going to heal me. I've got no doubts about that, but here's what I want, God. I don't want to miss what you're going to do in my life right now that's going to change me and change the way that I live on the other side. So please, even right now, show me what you want me to do with this cancer experience. Well, later that morning, she was in the waiting room with a lot of other people who were going through these chemo treatments and even members of her own family. And uh, one person in particular overheard some of the things that she was saying and said to her, you know, wow, I I just got to be real honest with you. You're really an inspiration. I mean, your outlook and your faith on all these things. And then he asked her this. He said, hey, would you come speak at my church sometime? Well, her first inclination, like Moses, was to say, no, absolutely not, no way. I mean, she didn't enjoy public speaking, and this church had something like 500 people in it. But, but then she remembered what she had prayed earlier that morning, and she remembered praying, God, show me what and how you can use this experience in my life to touch others. And, and so she believed God. And she went ahead and she told her story that after this, you know, this particular service where she went and shared, there was just a line of people who all could speak to her about a different way that God had really used her and touched her and influenced her, uh, influenced them. And, and so she says, now I'm not afraid of my story anymore. I'm not afraid of the calling on my life and how God wants to use me and to tell people about how he's healed me and what that means for me and what that can mean for others. And what a great reminder for you, especially if you're home today, maybe home from college or something, you're going to go back later on this afternoon or something, and you're trying to live for God right now on your campus and it's hard, that God can use you. He can do that. Uh, He can use you even where you are right now. Or or maybe you've majored in one thing and you just really feel this sense from God that he, He wants to do something different. And even though you've got a couple of years in and a lot of money invested in something that you're not going to do anymore, it's just about trusting Him that, you know what, God can use me 
even in this transition for something else. Maybe you're newly married and you're discovering that it's hard. And you've got these thoughts that I could never be a godly wife, I could never be a godly husband or something like that, but I don't know if I can do this, but I'm just going to say yes to him. God, you can use me in this situation. Maybe you've been asked to consider some serving opportunities at a church like ours and you want to say no, but you just feel like God's nudging you out there. He's raising your hand for you and he's looking for you to say yes now. Or maybe you're trying to live generously in a very selfish world and it's hard, but you know that God can do this through you. You can't do it on your own, but God can give you that faith. He can give you that strength to live for him each day. God uses people like you and me all the time. We're not that much different than Moses. And he uses people like you and me all the time. We, we see that. Um, we had a team uh, go down to Haiti uh, last week, a little over a week ago, and serve for a week with one of our strategic ministry partners there. And uh, 12 people, all who said, hey, God, you can use me, and we want to give you a little recap of their experience. even know why God was calling me to go except that my dad wanted to go and my daughter wanted to go. I went because I love the people there. I just feel so much joy when I'm there and I feel so much at home. Most of the work had to do with getting a lot of the houses ready for uh, Haitian staff. There's a hospital that is soon to arrive and well not soon to arrive but be in working condition and they want houses ready for the Haitian doctors and or Haitian nurses. We did a lot of construction. I'm not skilled and I don't have um, a lot of gifts that way down there, but I can love on children and I can paint and I can pick up trash and um, and God used that in amazing ways. What the Haitian people need the most is love, affirmation, and encouragement. And that's something anyone can do. It doesn't take much just to have kids come and love on you and sit on your lap and for you to be a light for them and give them a smile or a photo. They always want photos with your phone and you can just see their smiles like you're there and you're supporting them. The best part about going to Haiti is that God won't hesitate to, to transform your heart. Understanding the life that they live there is certainly different from ours, but that doesn't mean that we're different. They are the same as us, and they have the same ups and downs every day as us. And they strive to, uh, to see the happiness and the joy in every day. If he's tugging in your heart and you're feeling that nudge, I, w I would just be on your knees and pray because God will bless you, bless you for going in ways you can't even imagine. If you were cautious about going to Haiti, God will be in front of you. God will put everything out in front of you and, and His plan of, of what you may have to do down there. If you're feeling inadequate that 
God can't use you down there, he can. Anybody can go. I mean, if I can go, anybody can go. Whether it's going to Haiti or somewhere here local, when you surrender to the Lord and you're willing to work for Him, your life will change. It'll change for the best. What's God prompting you to do? Uh, maybe it's something like go to Haiti. We've got a, another trip coming up in July, and uh, there's already information in your worship program about how to get signed up for something like that. If God's asking you to go, I want to challenge you to say yes. In, in fact, I, just very specifically, and I'm not going to try and break down each and every situation, but I just kind of want to plainly say to you this today. If, if God's nudging you to do something, um, I, want you to, I want to challenge you to say yes to him. Because especially if your tendency is to say no, I want to challenge you to say yes to whatever God's leading you to do. And so let that kind of guide you even as you go into the rest of today. And even this week, will, will you do that? The next time that God asks you to do something, that he calls you or nudges you to respond in some way, I want, I want to challenge you, especially if you would normally say no, to kind of go out on a limb with him and say yes to him. Because his strength is best when we see that we're weak, that he's not necessarily looking for qualifications, probably really not at all. He's just looking for that availability. He's looking for people like you and me that are just over and over in our lives as a way of surrender are willing to say yes to God. I'm going to trust you with this. I see that your strength is best in me and it's best even when I see that I'm weak. I want to go back real quick and look at one more thing that we briefly touched on a moment ago and then we'll wrap up. You know, this 10th plague, uh, the angel of death and the Passover and now, how were the Israelites spared? I mean, what prevented the angel from taking the firstborn in those Hebrew families? Well, just as a bit of review again, God told the Israelites to get ready, even the night before all of this happened, to get ready uh, and to leave Egypt, that they were going to be moving out from this place. And, and they were supposed to kill a lamb. He said, hey, as a way of protecting even your own family, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill this lamb and I want you to take the blood and I want you to sprinkle it across the doorposts of your home. And what will happen is this, that when the angel of death comes through the land and he's going to do just this, he will pass over any particular home where this blood has been applied to the door. And just as God had predicted, even that night in all of Egypt, there were all of these cries of grief. It was a plague like no one had ever seen before, but in Goshen. Where the Israelites lived, the death angel saw the blood on the doorposts of the home of each house, and just as God said, passed over them. The blood they sprinkled on the doorposts of their home was a sign. It was a symbol. And that night, the Jewish family sat together and they ate a meal. And from this point on, that meal has always been referred to as the Passover meal. And it's because the death angel passed over their home. And how were they saved? It was because of the blood of the lamb. It was the blood of a perfect lamb. And more than a thousand years later, it was the night of the Passover meal when Jesus took the bread and he took the cup with his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And do you know what he was doing for the disciples, what he was doing for these Jewish followers? He was bridging their tradition and their understanding of the Passover meal and showing them how he would become their Passover lamb, how he would pay the price for their sins once and for all. And so when asked, how can you be saved today? Well, the answer is, it's through the lamb. It's through the blood of the lamb, just like with the Israelites. It's the blood of the lamb that saves us from our sins. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the second half of that verse says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I mean, again, as the Israelites sprinkled the blood on the doorposts of their home, what we're invited to do 
is to sprinkle the blood of Jesus Christ on our heart. It's when we surrender to him. It's when we trust him and we seek him for forgiveness and redemption in our lives. Let's pray. God in heaven, um, we thank you that you have provided a way out, a way to forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for sending Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God as our Savior, and that through him we can find life and hope and forgiveness. God, speak into our lives today. Help us find our strength and our confidence in you even when we're feeling weak. And as we live for you, grow our faith so that when we call you or when you call us or when you nudge, we're ready and willing to say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.